0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is an author, poet, music and cultural critic, and now a podcaster, Hanif's previous book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes on a Tribe Called Quest, earned him a spot on the National Book Awards long list for nonfiction. Today, we discuss his most recent book, A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. And I just have to say, I loved this essay collection so much, and I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you all. We are still in the throes of our month-long fundraiser for Million Book Project. I'm asking the Stacks community to help me raise $50,000 for this organization that brings libraries into prisons to counteract what prison does to the human spirit. Click the link in the show notes to contribute what you can. And please note, Million Book Project is run through Yale's Law School, and that is where you'll be redirected to make your donation. The Stacks Book Club pick for April is The Tradition by Jericho Brown. We will discuss this poetry collection in detail with Reginald Dwayne Betts on Wednesday, April 28th. As always, I would like to give a shout out to the newest members of the Stacks Pack on Patreon. If you'd like to join these people helping to make the show possible every single week, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to earn inside access to the show and make new episodes possible. Thank you to Bria James, Tracy Kennedy, Danielle Cameron, Carolyn Artiega, Reginald Bailey, Kate and George, Rachel Goldman, Lisa Mendels, Anne Crawford, and Joe Taylor. Thank you all so much for your support of this podcast. And now it's time for my spoiler-free conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib. All right, everybody. I am very excited, as I say every week, but this week I really mean it. I am joined today by Hanif Abdurraqib, who is the author of A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance, among other books. But that's the book we're going to focus on today. So, Hanif, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you. I devoured this book. I think it is just... I don't, I, can't, I don't know. We're going to talk about it, so I don't have to put all my words into one sentence right now, but I'm going to make you do that in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about the book?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the best way I can describe it is the book is kind of like a catalog of my many excitements that I encountered while considering the ways that Black people have lent performances to American culture in the way that I have revelled personally in my own performances throughout my life as a as a black person in America.
0: Mm, God, I love it. I I'm very excited to get into your brain today because you think in such you think and I guess and then write in such an interesting way and as I was reading this book I was thinking like, wow, how have I never thought about X Y and Z. Um I'm curious, can you just sort of define performance for us? Because there are so many different things that you touch on throughout the book. So I'm interested in what performance looks like, specifically Black performance looks like to you.
1: Well, I for me with the book, I was trying to expand the definition of performance to encapsulate things that did not particularly occur for the benefit of whiteness or even American consumption, Mm. right? So the performances that um, not only take place behind closed doors, but the type of coded and regional and even hyper-regional performances that um, take place in a way that is almost intentionally not only accessible to the broader American landscape, but sometimes inaccessible to other black folks who aren't hip to, like the Spades essay is a perfect example of that, like talking about um house rules and how house rules are are one of those hyper regional things that i think even other black folks sometimes don't have access to if they're not hip to where they're playing at in that kind of construct the construct of a game like spades that has rules that differ depending on in some cases where ancestors came from there's there's something um there's something of a performance in there, the performance of carrying on one's legacy through a game of cards, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have homies that play the way they play because their grandmas taught them and their grandmas learned from someone and they refuse to kind of break rank on that as long as you're in their house or in their neighborhood, you know? And there's something kind of beautiful about that, about the carrying of ancestors as a, as a performance, but also the kind of exuberance that a card game like Spades has often um, bought Fourth in people I love and care about as a type of performance, you know, people who who don't normally sing shouting in what sounds like song when they have a good hand.
0: Right, right, right. I grew up with her I have a performance background. I went to theater school, and so I think some one of the things that speaks to me about this book is the ways that you're kind of subverting what we think of as performance i guess performance that is intended for an audience and then performance that is consumed by whoever is around whether or not the there was an intended audience i think maybe is like a way of putting it and i think throughout your work and throughout this book you are sort of subverting what we think when we think about certain things or making choices that are different like there's an essay on whitney houston where you don't talk about her death at all or, or you briefly mentioned that you're not going right, to talk right, about right. it. And so I'm curious, like when you're approaching a subject or you're getting ready to write about something, how are you how are you thinking like I'm going to put my hanifness on this? Or are you thinking that at all?
1: I don't think I'm thinking it at all, but I do think about, um, you know, restraint is a tool that I feel like I bring to the work or I try to bring to my work mm. that allows for me to access ideas that have you know, I don't think I'm breaking much new ground with anything I write, but I think restraint is a tool that allows me to kind of access a less obvious idea. Um, and, you know, like writing about Whitney Houston, for me, is something I've done before and I've done a great deal. Um, and I've often tried to steer away from writing about her death or writing about the kind of salacious nature of the of the narratives that haunted her, her passing, because I don't find that to be interesting or fulfilling right. to me right? I, I don't think um what is more generous to approach is a type of gratitude, not only for her living, but for the way that through her living, her absence left such a void that it allows me to revisit her life and her work with a really pleasurable tone um and not a mournful tone. Mm. And so I, I think that I was trying to continue that tradition of writing about Whitney Houston in a way that honors her life by saying, and in some ways honoring her death by saying her absence, uh, I'm so grateful for her life and so grateful that my life intersected with hers, that this absence uh, offers me an opportunity to consider something that I otherwise wouldn't have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. First of all, for folks, I didn't say that. I'll say, and this will have been said in the introduction, but I didn't say it to you. Um, Your podcast, Object of Sound, you do an episode on Whitney Houston's National Anthem with Wesley Morris, who is, people will know, is one of my favorite podcasters because I love still processing. And last night, I actually went back and re-listened to their episode on Whitney Houston. And for folks who who do love I think as both of us do or who maybe don't love or don't know that much about Whitney Houston I highly recommend both of those episodes also Sam Sanders has a great episode about it, her and the national anthem and I'm just so grateful that you didn't live and, and write about the death in a sort of salacious way at all because I think you're right there's so the way that you write about a lot of different people and a lot of different things is that you give the reader an opportunity to think outside of the one thing that is front and center in the cultural narrative now you know like right now i feel like when people say whitney houston it's like that picture of the bathroom or whatever and and your essay on her it's like that didn't even wasn't it's not important it's not important to her her, what she shared with all of us and what she gave all of us when she was you know when she was at work essentially when she was performing right so i appreciate that
1: I loved, I loved that episode with Wesley because, you know, like, I don't, I don't, to be frank, like, I don't care about the national anthem at all. (laughs) And so, it's, but, and I'm not saying that Wesley does, but like, I think that Wesley's relationship with that specific performance, you know, I went into that episode, like, I was happy to do it. Obviously, you know, I chose the topic. Right. right, I was like, listen, like, it's going to be hard for me to, to kind of be exuberant about this. I just don't care about the national anthem, but there was that moment. And um, I mean, a big secret, I guess, no longer a secret. I don't really listen to object to sound. Uh, so I don't really know if this made it into the final cut. Okay. I'm sure it's, I just don't want to hear my own voice. And so I never listened to, my, um, <laughs> but there's this point where like Wesley and I were watching it together mm. uh, over the zoom. Like we had a shared screen and we we're just watching the video together. And he got like very emotional mm-hmm. watching it. Mm-hmm. And, it dawned on me that like, it wasn't about like his emotions weren't being pulled forth because of any kind of nationalistic Mm -mm. pride. It was just, and he got emotional, like early. I hope I'm not, I hope this made it in the podcast and I'm not like clowning my West. No, he
0: did. He got emotional on the episode.
1: Okay. I was going to say, I hope I'm not like revealing (laughs) um, a behind the scenes thing, but he got like emotional really early on. Right. He got emotional, like 35 seconds in. And I realized like, Oh, this isn't about America. This is about just seeing Whitney alive Mm -hmm. and doing something spectacular. And I think that unlocks something in me, something that I I mean, that is easy for me to access when I'm thinking about it, but that I rarely get to see manifest in other people. Mm, you know, yeah. um, I'm rarely in the room when people have the, these revelatory moments of, you know, there's this there's this photo I love of Jackie Woodson, Jacqueline Woodson, putting like a. And this is like a deep literary photo, so I don't okay. expect it. it's not like super famous. I hope, I don't know if everyone knows it, but she's like maybe placing a medal or something around or putting something in the hands of Toni Morrison. Mm. And, um, Jackie posted it like last year, um, or no, a couple, I mean, whenever we lost Toni, whenever we lost this Morrison, Jackie had posted it. And I, I remember seeing it and I was, um, and just weeping. Like I was mm. walking in DC, I was like at Hurston Wright, so I was on Howard's campus and, I was just like staring at this photo on my phone and weeping. And I returned to it like every couple months because it invokes something instantly and emotionally in me. These two writers, these two black women I love, like sharing a really intimate moment on a stage. And I hesitate to call that a performance, right? But I think that photo, that action that some would see as mundane um, really echoes for me emotionally and brings me back towards a gratitude for the fact that my life intersected with Miss Morrison's life for a little bit and that I get to be alive at the same time as someone like Jackie Woodson.
0: Right. Well, Can I ask why you hesitate to call that a performance?
1: Mostly because I don't want to classify that for, you know, it feels different to classify that for like, for Jackie specifically, you know, which I know that in my book, I've classified things as performance. I've taken the liberties to do that. But I think in in such a tender moment like that, I would be a little more hesitant. And I think maybe I'm hesitant because it's something that provides me personally with a great, with just a really great emotional ecosystem to sink into. And, uh, and so even my witnessing and re-witnessing of it feels selfish, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think I have hit my selfishness limit with it in, in deeming it a performance feels a little, a little more selfish than I'm willing to be.
0: Interesting. I, I- it's so interesting because where this started with the Whitney thing, um, because I listened to your episode with Wesley twice, and I listened to Sam's episode about Whitney Houston twice for similar reasons, like that it, it evoked something in me, not so much the national anthem, but the conversation around it and hearing her voice, and, and I... And I feel similarly like that I did it for selfish reasons. And there are personal reasons that I have different feelings about Whitney Houston that are deeper. Um, she passed away on the same day as my father. So there's something tied oh, her... up in that as well, you know, but like yeah. the whole thing, I, I can relate to what you're saying, like that feeling of someone else's work or someone else's moment becoming something that is emotionally evocative for you in sort of like a not and maybe not gratuitous, but like you sort of just want to like sink into the emotion of it as a as a witness to it or something. I want to ask you about grief because, you know, you lost your mother at a young age and you've lost many friends in your life and we're sort of in this, we're not sort of, we're deeply in this moment of COVID where many, many, many Americans are experiencing grief, some probably not for the first time, and some also for the first time. And you have an essay on grief in this book. And I guess, I don't even know really how to how to phrase this, but have you changed your thoughts at all around grief or your experiences around grief because of what you've seen in the last year?
1: That's a good question. I think I've widened my capacity for holding the grief of others. Mm. That's one big thing. But in terms of shifting my feelings around grief, I think that is... Machinery that's kind of been humming towards a different destination since I was maybe in my late twenties. Um, I almost required myself to stop being angry, um, about loss and about the people I've lost. And I required myself to stop being angry, um, about the moments where I survived myself when I didn't think I could or wanted Mm -hmm. to. And instead I've really had to, I've had to align myself towards gratitude in a lot of different ways. But when it comes to grief, I think that is the one most enduring way that I've aligned myself towards gratitude because in part, if I'm thinking about the long arc of my life, my like unspectacular arc of living, (laughs) It is pretty fascinating to me that I live and have lived at the same time as so many people who have touched my life in so many different ways. And I think a big thing is that when I was younger, I felt entitled to that, Hmm. right? I felt that it was almost a requirement to be alive and have people who love you and care about you or to have your life intersect with people who love and care about you and And because I felt that it was an entitlement, I was of course angry every time the only emotion I could feel was anger whenever someone was taken away from me because I had built this scarcity model mm. you know because with entitlement comes for me at least with entitlement comes these ideas of scarcity where it's like because I'm entitled to this many people in my life who love me and care about me, every time one goes away, I don't think I'm gonna find another one right, right right I believe myself entitled to it, but not but I also know that it's fleeting and I really had to orient myself more towards an understanding of loss. And some of this quite frankly is just because I was losing so many people at such a high rate Mm. that I had to orient myself towards gratitude and an understanding that there's something miraculous uh, about the fact that I got to spend nearly 13 years of my life with my mother at all, Mm. Um, which is, and that i still get to carry parts of those 13 years with me right you know um there are friends that i that i lost who were on the music scene that i was on coming up and what a miracle that when i felt very much wandering the vast expanse of my like early 20s and late teens there were other black kids who loved punk the way i love punk and we could connect on that and that really shaped a lot of my identity and so i have gratitude for that i have gratitude for the fact you know when we lose um even when we lose musicians or people who have created art that i love i have to return to gratitude and say what a miracle that i could have been born and lived a a, a life at any time but i was born and lived a life at a time where whitney houston also lived some of her life you know right i'm in ohio when you know i'm born born ohio like when it's incredible to me that I get to be alive. I got to be alive at the same time as Miss Toni Morrison.
0: Right. Right. You know,
1: from Lorraine, Ohio, like, you know what I mean? Like that, that our Ohio lives have some intersect. These are things that I I return to because otherwise I think I would be consumed by grief, particularly now when I do find myself like a lot of people, as we approach a year of at least the U S affliction with the pandemic running up against an emotional wall, and taking stock of all that has been lost and asking what else can be lost. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, like I, you know, I, I I live alone in my house with my dog and um, there are moments where it feels like time is moving at a glacial pace. But when I take account of, all in the past year that I won't be able to get back in terms of the physical seeing of people I love, then it feels like time's accelerated.
0: Right. You know? Right. Yeah.
1: Like I saw the, I mean, not to go too deep on a tangent, but like, you know, because it was nice outside, you know, I'm in, I'm in Ohio. So like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. winter was rough. And so because it was nice outside this past weekend and nice means like 50 degrees and sunny, I, I got to go to a park and see one of my friends who has a kid and like, Seeing the kid fucked me up. It's so like I, I cuss. Sorry, are you allowed to cuss. Yes,
0: yes, yes. I, okay. I cuss all the time. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> and seeing seeing her child fucked me up because it was like, yo, you know, he's like one, and so, like a little over one now. So he's he's like growing, like running and playing. It's mm-hmm. like, yo, last time I saw the homie, he was like crawling, not be And this is someone who I live in the same city as, like ten minutes away from. Him, right. right. And so there's a there's a type of understanding of grief that I am pacing myself for, that I just know hasn't sunk in yet. I haven't really registered the level of grief that I am going to feel when I have had time to fully reckon with the actual emotional material circumstances of what gets lost in a year indoors, in a year of uncertainty.
0: Right. I do feel like the pandemic has put a year into perspective, at least up to this point, in a way that I don't think I'd ever really understood it previously, like 365 days, sure. But what it actually feels like to be sort of locked in for a year. um, I I mean, my listeners know this, you might not, but I have um, 14 month old twins. And so I'm experiencing sort of the other side, which I'm sure your friend probably feels, which is like, my little kids are all of a sudden they're like really great now and they're sort of fun and like weird. And I'm like, I want my friend I want to show them to my friends. I want my I want them to know a, a hug from my friends. I want them to know right. all of those things. And you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a minor personal grief for me and my husband and, you know, for the children, I guess, but probably they won't remember, obviously. But it is still deep, you know. And I think that's also hard is like finding ways to balance our own personal griefs versus like the bigger collective loss of life and like these major major griefs um okay we have to talk more about the book I, It's just that i find yeah, you to yeah. be so I, i'm just sort of like obsessed with you in this weird way where i just everything you write is so interesting to me and i just want to think like you so i want to ask you questions about all these things but i want to ask you questions about the book too which is you are a music person you wrote um, you I think what I read about you is that you came up sort of like through the zine scene and like writing yeah. in that way. Um And you're also yeah. a poet, which if people can't tell from the way that you talk, hello, are you listening? Ecosystem of emotion. I'm taking notes. Uh, <laughs> but I want to know how you write about music because you put something that is sonic. You put the sounds of music. You describe music, songs that we all know, voices that we've heard, um, and you put them into words. and. I just, I don't understand how someone, you make, you made me hear Gimme Shelter in a way that I'd never heard the song before that I went back and listened to it like eight times in a row being like, oh my gosh, how have I missed? I'd never heard Mary Clayton's voice crack. I'd never listened to it in that way. And so I'm curious how you approach actually writing about something that we listen to.
1: Yeah, so a big, and I have to say that I believe that I was just I came up in an era where I was like forced to close listen and I I think I owe my parents relationship with music and the fact that I'm the youngest of four mm. uh, and I grew up in a household where music was playing constantly to this ability to close listen because everyone around me was but I am someone who really believes in listening in fragments especially if I am if I'm really obsessed with a song I have to humble myself and understand that I have not heard it in all the ways I can hear it yet. Mm. You know, like Gimme Shelter, the story of Gimme Shelter to me lives in the isolated vocal, right? Which is hard. I can't listen to the isolated vocal because it's just too difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when working on the book, I obviously had to spend some time with it. And Mary Clayton's isolated vocal, it was was so interesting to me. The story of Gimme Shelter to me is not in the song, which is a fine song. It's a good song. I'm not a... I appreciate the Rolling Stones, but do not love the Rolling Stones. Okay. Um, so Gimme Shelter is a fine song. But to me, the story in Gimme Shelter is not even in Mary Clayton's voice cracking, but it is for me in the fact that when I first heard the stories around Gimme Shelter, it was not about Mary Clayton's voice cracking, but it was about Mick Jagger's reaction to her voice yes. cracking. Yes. So even in the stories about the, the song, Mick Jagger was prioritized like Mick Jagger's background voice was prioritized over the full frontal voice of Mary Clayton, which was reaching for um, spectacular and potentially damaging heights, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, that was more interesting than something. So I'm, I'm not necessarily even writing about sound. Sometimes I'm writing about sound, surely, but I'm writing about the implications around in this case, at least I'm writing up the implications around what gets prioritized. And in order to do that, I need to write in a way that allows people to either hear something in real time or what I would prefer is that um, to build an excitement in a person that makes them want to hear, like go and put down whatever little bullshit I wrote and go Mm -hmm. listen to the source material. You know what I mean? Like that's, there's, this summer, I got really back into, um, I, I, began to rebuild my vinyl collection just out of, you know, I had, I have too many things in my house and I wanted to, I gave away like all my vinyl and decided I was going to rebuild my collection just buying what I needed. Like I don't need 300 fucking records, you know, like I just <laughs> probably need like 150, like, you know, and, but one of the first ones I bought you know, was, was songs in the key of life and, um, You know, I've heard Knocks Me Off My Feet a million times Mm because everyone has and some all the black folks I know have. But (laughs) on headphones, I remember this summer on headphones, I was listening to Knocks Me Off My Feet. And I could not believe that I had never fully sunken into the drums in that song. And it, it reiterated for me the fact that I'm never done listening. Mm. and if i hum, if I humble myself and allow myself to believe that i 'm never done listening, then that leads to a really enthusiastic practice of hearing what I did not allow myself to hear on listen number one hundred and one and and it allows for a real excitement a real revelatory excitement in listen number one hundred and two right and i want to sh- and like that's what i want to share with people
0: right right you um you have really great – the book has a great title. The essays have really great titles. How are you coming up with those? Where do you pull those from? Is it you? Yeah. Or are you with your editor? Like what does that look like?
1: No, the titles – I'm a big title person, especially book titles. Although I have to say I, I, I do know and I peep that I get a lot of love for book titles. But they're never – let me think. Um, none of my book titles are my language. Hmm. Like I've never – you know, all my book titles are – Quotes from somewhere else that I've mm-hmm. just kind of isolated. And I think that maybe that is where I have a skill, uh, is in isolating language and saying this maybe deserves its own billboard, especially because, you know, so a little devil in America comes from justine Baker's speech on the March on Washington in 1963. And it's, it's like a throwaway line. Like it's mm-hmm. not really, you know, it's not, she doesn't even like land, uh, it's not like she's landing a thing with it. It's kind of, you know, she's talking to the younger folks in the audience and she says this thing like, you know, ask your parents about me. They'll tell you I was a devil in their right. I was a devil in other countries and I was a little devil in America too. Mm. Um, And I, but when I read that and this book, wasn't always called that. I mean, another thing with me is that my books often, um, you know, the title that gets announced is not the title that it's going to be at the finish line. Um,
0: Do you remember what this one was before it was this?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was called They Don't Dance No More, which is a, mm. an homage to Goody Mob, of course, but also, like, it was when the book was maybe a little more dance-focused okay. than it became. But also, I just loved this idea. I loved the full Josephine Baker quote, right? But I loved isolating it. I loved the musicality of it, but I also loved what it implied, something ominous and something dangerous, but also something that I could smirk at knowing... uh. That for me, um, you know, and not to get into like too high level of a religious talk, but I, I, I grew up around people who didn't necessarily fear the devil because the devil, the portrayals of the devil that we always saw were the cool, like the coolest motherfucker in the room, (laughs) you know? And, and so there's something that I'm winking at too with the title, um, that perhaps, uh, it is the devil who will save America's soul and, and not any kind of holy deity.
0: Right. What about the covers for your books? Are you, do you have a yeah. hand in that or is that? Not, oh yeah. You, okay. Some authors don't. Yeah. Some authors are like, they brought me three options and I said, I liked a, and they picked C. So i was kidding. Yeah. And I,
1: it's funny because whenever like my book covers come out and I, cause I'm, I'm pretty transparent about these processes. Um, and I, I first have to say like so much love to, to Ben Greenberg and the team at Random House because – and to UT Press and to, like, the only cover of mine that's kind of, like, landed on the first try was uh They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And the rest have been, like, real processes. Really? Because I am big on – and it's my fault. You know, I'm, like, really big on getting the getting the shit right. Mm-hmm. And um I'm really big at going back and forth and kind of just being, like, you know, if it's not ready, then – it's not going to be ready, you know, like I, but I, I really believe in tweaking a lot of things. And with this one, especially we went through a lot. I mean, we went through a lot of different covers and we got close a few times. Um, And, you know, I feel like this is going to make me sound like a diva, but you know, we got close a few times and I would like go to sleep and wake up the next morning. Right. As they were like, I think this is the one I'd be like, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. Oh my God. I back. relate.
0: I can relate to this <laughs> so much.
1: It's uh you know I'm super hands on with my covers because it's you know I went through um a lot of images and the one that was super close was this photo of Josephine Baker that I love so much where she's kind of like very much in the air and her arms are up um but it didn't feel fully right and I was like if I if we put Josephine Baker on the cover and the title's a Josephine Baker quote. Well, right. I have to convince people that this is not a Josephine Baker bag. Right, right,
0: right, right. Um,
1: right. But, and then I found, um, this photo of, of Leon James and Willa May Ricker doing a Lindy Hop aerial. And I knew it was the one because what I was actually searching for during this whole cover process was a black person in the midst of doing something spectacular that you could tell they don't even believe themselves right <laughs> i just had to that look you at can my tell cover. that they're like yeah in the, in the way she's like looking at him right. while they're in the air like you can tell that she's like i cannot believe like we nailed that it we are achieving like we're this. doing yeah. this
0: oh my gosh and yes
1: I, and that's like the exact photo i wanted you know like i wanted something that in the because the josephine baker photo that i loved ultimately like it kind of obscured her face mm. and i think what i came down to was like no 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 like if if I want to have a black person dabbling in the incredible, in the spectacular on this cover, I want people to see their faces. I want people to know that they know they're doing something great. That was more important to me than anything.
0: Right. Well, I think you nailed it. Um, Looking at this cover, I'm like, whoa. Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. I want to transition a little bit into your process. Um, obviously, we've talked a lot about music and well, let me start here. About how long did it take you to write this book? Like when, when did you kind of get the idea to do it versus it being born into the world at the end of March?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, notoriously, this book is the second book in a row where I kind of discarded like half of it and then kind of which is you know like thanks to thanks to random house again uh (laughs) shout out random house (laughs) yeah because i feel like in in tin house too because i feel like in both the cases both with this and my poetry book that came before this i was like y'all i don't think this is the book that i told you it was going to be and instead and and not only that was like and that book's not coming back like you know what (laughs) i mean like that book right and so I, you know I, i went to that was kind of the vibe with this where i got halfway through it and you know, the book as it was sold was a book about minstrelsy and appropriation. Um And I found that that was not very pleasurable for me to write. Hmm. You know, I wanted to remove the kind of haunting specter of whiteness from the book's form and format and instead see what was possible when I just simply reveled in the long history of black people doing spectacular things or uh, the quiet nature of black people doing small and spectacular things, or the complicated nature of black people doing spectacular things in a white supremacist landscape. All of these right. things was more, but even in doing that latter one, censoring the black people doing spectacular things, that was, that became so much more interesting to me in part because about halfway through I hit on the soul train, I say, that opens the book. Yes. And when I finished that piece, I was like, oh, this is how I want to feel about everything in the book. As mm-hmm. good as I feel writing this and as good as I feel, I want to feel that about every single thing in the book. And also, I had passed off a draft of it to the editor I worked with, who's the great Maya Millet, who's a genius. And she was, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, I, I would love a um, – I kind of went out on my own. Not that Random House is unequ- unequipped to edit the book. I just, you know, I had heard about Maya and her work and um i knew some folks who had worked with her and everyone's like yo she is like really will get your book together and be immensely honest with you you know mm-hmm. like because her stakes are not the same you know her stakes are just like she just wants the book to be good she's not like working for she's just a freelance editor and so I, I linked up with maya and she like extracted the soul train essay in the, the like interlude pieces that the times i told myself to dance pieces and she was kind of like this is where i feel like the book is working because it feels like you're not catering to any broader ideas of mm. explanation or apologia." and she's like i just think you've got to ride you got to ask yourself how you can get everything else to rise to this level and that was so exciting i, I you know initially i was like oh fuck you know well <laughs> more but- work <laughs> but it was so exciting for me because I was like, "You're right." Like when I wrote these little pieces, that's when I was most excited. Right. And um, the Soul Train essay used to be for people who haven't read the book. This is going to be like a little inside baseball, but the Soul Train essay, the Whitney Houston essay, used to be the same essay. But oh. then I broke them apart um, to get to the Soul Train essay. And, and Maya was like, "I think you need to to try to get the Whitney Houston essay to the level of that Soul Train essay because that's going to unlock something for you in the rest of this book." And then when I did the rest of it kind of flowed out really comfortably.
0: Was there any essay that was particularly difficult to bring to that level or any one that you really struggled with writing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the Magical Negro one was challenging because of all of the things it was trying to juggle at once, Mm -hmm. like moving, moving timelines really rapidly and kind of heavily populated. I mean, that piece is probably the most heavily populated piece in the book, you know, because it's like, and we fought, you know, like not fought, fought, but the way that editors and writers fight. So I was like, "Yo, I want the whole thing with the magical Negro shit is that I want Ellen Armstrong in the book, like Ellen Armstrong, the magician, the black woman magician. That's the I know that that piece. You know, we're talking about like Dipset and Chappelle and me in college and right. the rundown of all the magical Negroes at the beginning, which is like playful and somewhat rhythmic. But I was like, all that aside if this piece can't have Ellen Armstrong in it, then I don't want it in the book. Because mm. what I was actually trying to get at was the trick that Ellen Armstrong was most known for, which was pulling coins from behind her audience's ears and giving them the coins. But we're not talking about any audiences. We're talking about poor black folks in the early 1900s who, you know, would come to the shows without much of their pockets in the... The function of the trick is to say, here is something a little more than what you had before. And Mm. that is where the essay turns for me because that magic trick is a magic trick I had seen performed in many modes by many black people in all of my many lives. Mm. You know, the bare cupboard that leads to a fulfilling dinner or the basketball shoes that appear when there were no basketball shoes and there are tryouts the next day. These kind of things. Right. 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 the way that reaching behind the ear and pulling out a coin has manifested itself through many modes of my personal black history and through American history with black folks. I needed Ellen Armstrong to be present in that piece. Uh, And the work of getting her in there somewhat seamlessly uh, (laughs) was really hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where do you do your writing? Kind of set the scene for us. Where are you, what are you eating or drinking snacks or beverages? That part's important. Don't forget that when you answer, um, any rituals, any candles, are you in your home? Are you out in the world? If it's not a pandemic. Um, and then I'm going to ask you a whole other question about music so you can leave the music part out for now. And then we'll circle back to that.
1: (laughs) Um, Well now, I mean, you know, normally I would, I was, I traveled so much in 20 from like 2017 to 2019. Um, you know, 2019, I did like a hundred and something readings or whatever. Oh my god! And so, yeah, um, I mean, I had two books come out. It was like a whole thing. So, in a way, I'm learning how to write at home again. And I have to say, I have to give credit to the poet Vi V. Francis, the great V. Francis, who, when I was, um, and I, I just had the opportunity to, like tell her this because she emailed me, um, awesome, just like you know, do you have some poems for a guest issue type of thing. And I was like, yo, in anyway, Ivy Francis, when I was at Callaloo um, in 2015, maybe when I was working on my first book of poems, Ivy Francis told me this thing about learning how to set your table. She said this, this, this thing about how writers so often think about how to get into a poem and how to offer themselves to the, at the, the altar of the poem, but don't necessarily think about how to recover themselves when they exit the poem or, mm. the, or the writing. Like how to get parts of yourself back. So she told me this shit about like setting your table, which sounds exactly like it is, where you have stuff around you that grounds you, so that when you step back from the work, you have something that reminds you of your the fullness of yourself as a person beyond whatever you put on the page, right? And so on my desk, um, my desk is a mess right now, but um, I have I always keep a book I love that I can return to and read a little bit from. And right now that book is Marianne Chan's Poems, All Heathens. Uh, this book, of this book of poems I love and particularly a poem in defense of karaoke, which I read all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I have crystals on my desk that I play with when I talk too much. But I have this pyrite that I love a lot and I have black tourmaline that I like a lot. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm a big water drinker now, which is something I did not see coming even five years ago. <laughs> but now I drink a lot of water. And though it's not on my desk right now, I have this large pink water bottle that um, I carry around with me almost everywhere. And that is always, always, always on my desk because I'm someone who I kind of pace and move around when I write in my office. Yeah. And so I, I like to kind of like take the water bottle on a short walks around the room and sip here or there.
0: Yeah,
1: I love it. Snacks? I'm not a big snacker when I write because I get so distracted but i will say that i like to um I, and and this is another big thing i have cut back drastically on candy which is why snacks are a little bit out of the picture because back in the day which i mean for me is like two months ago okay. um i've only cut back on candy like two months in the past two okay. months okay. I, I i would eat these um you know those like sour twin cherries yeah Those like gummy sour I, that was my shit for a while okay. so i would have like a bag of them i'll mm. go to the candy store and just, like, the bulk candies and just get a huge bag of them and just set them on my desk and just nibble as I went. I like the consistency of a gummy candy, uh, which... I have now replaced with dried apricots, which is Ugh. less exciting. It's know, my nightmare. But.
0: I love a candy. I love a gummy. And I actually despise dried apricots. I think that they are <laughs> like it's – They're just, I don't like apricots. And my husband yeah. likes apricot jam. And so now I go extra hard against apricots just like on principle. I'm like, oh, that has an apricot. I can't even look at it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I don't even really like them. I just like – I think I needed to like replicate replicate the consistency. But, like chewy. The chewy kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's wild because I didn't cut back on candy for any, like, real reason.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's not like a doctor told me, like, you got to cut back on candy. I just hit a point where I was like, maybe I should not eat a giant bag of sour cherries every day like over the course of four days right you know right 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 Uh, (laughs) and so here i am so that's my snacking has my snacking has changed drastically and now i occasionally will do some dried cherries
0: i'm sad i'm sad for this for you but uh, more gummies in the world for me than i guess um Okay, I want to talk about music and your writing. A lot of writers can't write with music um, or they can only listen to music without words or they can only listen. But I'm curious if you're writing to what you're listening to. I mean, if you're writing about what you're listening to, if you're listening to anything at all. I know you curate so many playlists. You have like writing playlists. I basically want to know about your writing and your music at the same time.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of editing playlists. I can't listen to music while I write, but I almost require myself to listen to music while I'm editing. Okay. Some of that is because um, if I'm writing about something music-wise, I'm writing about a song or an album, I'm doing it in the moment without being present with that song or album in the draft phase.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And so in the editing phase, I need to be present with that song or album just to make sure I'm not misremembering something mm-hmm. or presenting something different than it, it it is. I am someone who will take a break from my writing to – especially with this book, more with this book than any other book, I got so immersed in visuals, like so, so immersed in visuals. And so there are points where I would take a break from writing to watch to kind of fall down these miniature YouTube video rabbit mm. holes, which like is a type of listening. But when you're talking about performance and the affects of performance, you know, for me, I needed to see certain things, not even musical performances, but just sitting with interviews, mm. watching people as they're interviewed. Um you know, I had to dig up the Bernie Mac, I Ain't Scared of You Motherfuckers Right, right, right. Right, and these kind of things. And so my relationship with listening and media as I write kind of shifted with this book because it became so visual and less sonic. Mm. You know, like even when I was listening to things, it was prioritizing the visual aspect. I mean, like notoriously, and I've talked about this a bit before, working on this, I watched like – you know i want to say maybe approaching like a hundred hours of soul train archival footage you know um (laughs) just like at my house you know and i and now i revisit it like i go back and i spend like one night a week watching just hours of soul train because Mm -hmm. um i mean a real honest thing that i think that i'm reckoning with is and i don't mean this to disparage my other books or their processes but i i had so much fun working on this book that I think what I'm currently feeling and encountering is a type of uh, grief and some sadness with the fact that it's no longer just mine, mm, you know. yeah, A lot of pleasure, obviously, but right, right. I had never had so much excitement and so much fun working on a book. And when it ended, like when I turned it in and when I turned in like the capital F final draft, there was a small sadness. But now um, parting with it, preparing to part with it is – a little bit heavier than I expected. Hmm. And I, I didn't think I would ever feel this way about, um, I'm not very precious about the stuff I write. You know, I'm not normally like this about my own creations or whatever, but there was such an overwhelming pleasure in spending time in the world of this book. And uh, I have to kind of let it go.
0: I'm I'm so glad that you, that you brought that up because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is this like call for black joy from white, audiences Um, and like this obsession with like, we don't want to see black people in pain or like, we don't, we don't want to exploit black experience. We just want to see black joy. And like, I hate it. And I think that it's really icky and gross. But one of the things that I loved about this book is that you really were able to tap into so much joyous stuff in relationship and inextricably linked to the pain and the grief and the trauma and whatever else might inform what leads us to to the joy, you know, as a form of resistance or as a form of creativity or whatever. And I'm glad that it was joyous for you to write this book because it was really it was a joy to read this book, you know, and like it was so incredibly fulfilling to learn more of our history and to learn more about you and to learn more about artists that I love. Like, it just was a really pleasurable read. So it feels nice to know that it was a a pleasurable writing experience for you.
1: It was. I will say, too, that, like, I think, you know, so many calls for Black joy that aren't rooted, that aren't made by Black people, that aren't centering Black people are done because whiteness needs to operate on its own terms. Yes. And so often those terms are detached from any type of American history. Right. Right. And so it's like asking for joy without considering any kind of history. It's 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 asking for an aesthetic, but not for a, a, a historical engagement. Right. Um when I actually think most commonly I am pulled back to pleasure and and joy among my kinfolk uh by Waiting in the miraculous waters of our survival and like being, you know, one thing that is, that is an enduring memory for me this summer was um, being out in, I, I want to say August at the, you know, after kind of just like being fucked with and, and beat on by police, like from at that point, a month and a half, you know, in, in the very specific capacity, obviously like police are fucking with people. Well, right, right, that, right. I mean in, the, in a very specific capacity of uprising wherein. People were getting arrested. People were getting dragged through the streets. All this stuff at the end of one night. Um, one particularly tense night, somebody just bought a, a a radio out to the center of the street that got shut down and put on maybe this is America or some song that Mm -hmm. like black folks knew or the cupid show, something like that, you know, and almost instinctively everyone, despite what they had witnessed and endured mere minutes ago, almost, um, muscle memory pulled them towards the center of the street to join and dance and, and to laugh and to almost laugh in the face of the idea that we would not be here, Right. you know? And so when I think about joy on terms that are more satisfying to me, I think about it like that instead of um, the folks who maybe want a mural of a smiling black face on their corporate, building to feel better you know like or or whatever the fuck
0: yeah i it's i mean yeah i'm with you a thousand percent if it's divorced from the actual history it's not it's it's useless to me um this is one of the most important questions i will ask you today which is what is the word you can never spell correctly on the first try
1: um i struggle with embarrassing because i always
0: hard one
1: any and really but i also think that um any word where there's like double letters in two different spots it kind of trips me up a little bit mm-hmm. because I'm always like, or wait, is embarrassing like that? Now I'm now I'm questioning myself.
0: I don't know how to spell it. Um, but I I'm gonna, it, I'm gonna spell it real quick. It has the opportunity for double letters. Same with recommendation. It's like I don't know. Right. Is there a double? Is there not a double? I don't know.
1: I shouldn't have second guessed myself. Embarrassment does have two R's okay. and then two S's. And but any but that's the thing, right? Yes. Is that any word like that? I'm like, are there two two double letters seems like excessive. A
0: thousand you know? percent. It's like what are it's wh- like, why do we need this?
1: Yeah. <laughs> relax, you know. I think like sonically, one S in embarrass and embarrassment in embarrassing could work. But those are always the words I have trouble with.
0: Oh my gosh, um, I
1: relate. But I, I tried to spell embarrassing earlier today and had a moment where I was like, ah, am I doing this right? Um, and it's one of those things where it's a miracle. It's one of those words where it's a miracle when I spell it in like Word and the little red line doesn't appear after I've departed it. After I've hit spacebar and gotten some distance from it,
0: I'm I'm with you. With that one and recommendation are my two. It's too many options. Um, yeah. You touched on this a little bit about um, collecting vinyl and I follow you on social media and your Instagram you're always modeling um really awesome vintage t-shirts like concert tees and artist tees and sneakers and all this stuff and I think of you sort of as like an artifact collector you talk about going to a like vintage store in the book I'm wondering how do you think that the collecting of cultural artifacts plays into your own creative process
1: well I mean some of it if I'm you know, my therapist would probably say that it's uh, an obsession with nostalgia in a search to sometimes detach me from the horrors of the present. Okay. Um, <laughs> that is what my therapist would say. Um, I think that, though, for me, you know, I'm just fascinated by the way things physically age, mm. let alone emotionally age or historically age. Um, I'm a, I mean, I'm a big sneaker person. I feel like most people who know my work a little bit know that. I'm a very, very big sneaker person, and... um I am someone who has certain pairs of sneakers that are the original, you know, like I have a pair of Jordans that actually came out in 1994 Mm. that actually came out in 1996. Right. And every now and I, and I wear, you know, I'm a big believer. I don't know how many sneaker heads you get listening to your podcast, but I'm a big believer in like, you know, you don't, I don't collect, like I wear the shits, you know, like you got to wear your shoes. Um, and so I was wearing, um, the like maybe in that at the end of summer I kind of took my '94 Jordan ones out of the box and I noticed they were yellowing a little bit along the sole and I was like oh that's so beautiful there's just like a natural yellowing process because the shoe is like decades old and I was like you know what I'm gonna wear these out you know I'm a, I'm like today's the day it's sunny I'm gonna wear them out and I was in Trader Joe's and the sole of the shoe just began to like kind of crumble because oh, no. <laughs> it's you know because it's, it's old. old you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's so funny that I was so caught up in the aesthetics and the beauty of the shoe that I didn't think of the practicality right. of the shoe and its functions. <laughs> and I actually think that is how I approach my nostalgic gatherings sometimes, where I can get so easily seduced by the beauty of something that I, the practical nature of how it fits and or fit and or fits in the world still, uh, can be obscured. And so I'm, that's something I'm consistently working on. I had to pay a lot of money to get those shoes resold. Um, I had to, like, send them to get restored. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, but, you know, I think vintage concert tees, too, you know. Like, I'm someone who spends – I mean, I talk about this forever, and I won't bore, you know, people who want to hear about books and whatnot, but um, I spend so much time online searching for people who are selling – because the market for vintage shirts is wild, right? Because you'll get people who are like, here's an Anita Baker concert tee from 1988 and I'm selling it for $150. And that's like not what I'm on. You know, like <laughs> I'm interested in finding the people who are like, I'll let this shirt go for 20 bucks. Cause that's what it, you know, that's like a right, little right, bit more right. than what it was worth at the time. And I, I, I sometimes believe that like, um, some of the shirts I have have to be haunted because <laughs> I like this. This past summer, I got this box of shirts at an auction that was very clearly, like, a woman who had some, like, an ex-husband <laughs> or some ain't shit dude who she was just trying to get rid of his stuff. Like, very, she was, like, very clearly just trying to get rid of his shit. Right. Because she was selling it for, like, nothing. It was very, like, waiting to exhale. You know okay. where she's, like, yeah. got the yard sale and everything's a dollar or whatever? Yeah. Um. And my homies were like, don't, I, you know, I went, that's some bad mojo. You don't, you don't know what that dude did. And I agree, but I was also like, yo, a, a box full of shirts for like $15, you know, like I'm with it. If, Do you know, you as just long like as I don't them or something. Them. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes, you know. <laughs> um, and so I, I like the pursuit of things. Um, I know that's broad, that's but fair. I, I love the pursuit of. I don't know. I love the pursuit of something that existed in a time before I did that tells a story about that time or that existed in a time that I don't remember that well that can reignite a memory for me. Um, I, I am very precious about memory. I believe in the rejuvenation of memory while I still have the, the, the capacity to remember things mm. and to feel connected to things and to people through memory. And so I, I you know, the day little Richard passed, I searched for hours for the Rolling Stone magazine he was on the cover of to find a, a good um you know a good ish a good copy of that issue and that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I I accumulate artifacts in a way because uh, I'm trying to build bridges back to a time I didn't have access to understanding as well as I as I could now.
0: I love that. Okay. We're almost done. I I have to ask you about this. We can't I can't let you go because um There's another book eventually coming. No rush. I don't want to put pressure on you, but there's always this year and it's a basketball book. And I'm very excited because I am a basketball person. I'm a sports person. And I know (laughs) that you are too. You're a Timberwolves fan.
1: I'm a very big Timberwolves fan. Sadly. Yeah.
0: Sorry. I'm, I'm a Warriors fan, but I grew up a Warriors fan. So I used to. Oh, no. I know. So I'm, I understand. When I was actually a little girl, we had season tickets and my dad, we had two tickets. So my dad would take my mom to like the big games, my brother to like yeah. the medium games. And I ended up going to like every Kevin Garnett game whenever he came <laughs> to Oakland because they were so bad and we were so bad. It was the 13 yeah. win season. So I'm just so freaking excited there's no question i'm just telling you that when it comes out you have to come back we have to talk basketball I love that. i'm super yeah. geeked about it so no rush take your time do your thing but like <laughs> you know, i'll be here waiting
1: <laughs> it's interesting because this one i will say the warriors are a team this season that is so exciting for me to watch because um you know, early on the NBA pundits were all like, well, you know, in order for the Warriors to be, com- to compete, Steph Curry is going to have to be like a superhero. And it's just not, you know, he's older, but he's really actually doing it he's doing in, in it. verse, but he's actually like doing it. And <laughs> he's I, crazy. I, I just, it's fun to watch. And I also feel like the Warriors, you know, I went to a home game in the Oracle era, like the height of the, of like Warriors dynasty era. And that was like no experience I had ever in terms of like professional arenas. Right. Uh I felt there was a point where like I felt like I was in a college arena. Just it was the wild. volume of the place. It was really wild. I will say though, I you know, um there's always this year, the title will probably change, but I I loved the idea of naming it after the banner that was unfurled uh in the queue in Cleveland during the playoffs in 2015. Uh, when pundits were like, they're going to lose, but it's always next year. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, th- this is the book I wanted to write before any other book is the funny thing, which I think is maybe a testament to like, I, I-, I want to be clear and say, have, every book I've written is a book I've wanted to write. Right, but right, right. there's there's a testament to like, you know, the artist who like makes the albums they want to make and then gets enough kind of runway to make the album they've always wanted to make. Right. You know, um, it- this is the book I wanted to write before any other book because... Um, you know, LeBron James and I are about the same age and we're in high school at the same time. And we also came up in the Ohio basketball ecosystem at the same time, which is a really interesting time because there were a lot of dudes who were great, but didn't quote unquote, make it. Mm. And I got really interested in fleshing out this idea of what it means to make it, particularly to be a black athlete in America and have making it aligned with a type of freedom. Mm. like in a type of access and what it means when you don't make it, but also don't like flame out in a spectacular way, you know? Right. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean this book, and I don't know, you know, and my obsession with basketball movies, uh, is no secret. And I, I, this is just the book I've always wanted to write. And, um, you know, it is, uh, I had to, I had to stress, you know, because I didn't, the news kind of broke yesterday. Um, and i was like oh it's like weird to have this news break in the middle of a press cycle for a book that's coming out this month and but i was you know with gratitude i had to be like y'all this is like years away so don't right. Like, right, like, right right this is this is the news of the day but also no one's going to see this book for like 3 years so
0: I can't yeah. wait. I I don't know if you know this person so I don't want to talk too much shit, but I'm just really excited for someone else to write about Ohio basketball and LeBron that is not named Brian Windhorse because I cannot fucking stand <laughs> him. I just he irks the shit out of me. I know if you're from <laughs> Ohio you might know him. I don't care. Whatever. Brian don't hurt yeah, me. Yeah. I hate you. Um he just <laughs> I he just drives me crazy and I just ugh. anyway, so I'm excited on some just personal petty shit, but I'm also excited because I'm a fan of yours. Do you have like two more minutes for me to ask you my last little question? Okay. I have
1: as many minutes as you need.
0: Okay, because we're over time, but I like to be respectful. These are my last few questions for you. For people who love your book, who read it and think it's just like the bomb dot com, what are some books you might recommend to them that are in conversation?
1: Oh gosh. That's such a good question. You know, there is sorry, I'm gonna no one can see me, but I'm I'm looking up things. <laughs> uh, I w cause I want to get the name of this book right. There's um the hippest trip in America, which was Nelson George's Soul Train book, okay. um, that I I I spent a lot of time with, and that I loved a great deal um, in the writing of this. But also, you know, like I love Joan Morgan, mm. um, and I, this is maybe not in conversation with my book, but the book that Joan Morgan wrote about Lauren Hill, yeah. about Lauren Hill, was really fascinating to me in a way, and it made me consider reconsider um the way that black performers are treated Mm. um and that is another thing i would i would i mean joe morgan's just great and i you know someone who i i think really highly of and i also you know one thing that i did a lot in the the making of this book was just read through a lot of old magazine articles. And so I feel sometimes like there aren't a lot of books that are in conversation with this book, not because it's like a wholly unique once-in-a-lifetime book, but because so much of the threads I was trying to tie were between like images Uh and between video. If someone wants to witness something in conversation with this book, they should watch the Soul Train line that is uh, the Love Train, the Love Train Soul Train line, where which, you know, all of, them. there are multiple times where I Love Train played in the Soul Train line, but there's one in like 1979, I think, uh, where it's just the, the line kind of falls apart and bodies fall atop each other. And it's just beautiful. And that is in conversation with my book and the photo of, um, there's this photo I love of Whitney Houston and Brandy and TLC. Mm. In like night, in like the early nineties, you know, I feel like that's in conversation with right. the book. And so, like, there are things in conversation with the book that I feel are less, you know, the 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 photo of Mary Clayton in her giant fur coat, you know, that's that is in conversation with the right. book more right. than perhaps more than any written word.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. um Last question: If you could have any one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be?
1: Oh wow. Um, I don't think that Don Cornelius or anyone I wrote about in the book, you know, it's interesting because as more things as, as like I know or become aware of things being written about me on the internet, um, like kind things, don't I mean, like not evil things, like right. nice things. Um, <laughs> as I become more aware of this, I become way more in tune with the people, you know, cause I've written about music for a long time and I've written about musicians for a long time. So I've countlessly heard, oh, I don't read about myself. Or like, thank you for doing this, but I'm not going to read it because mm. I don't read about myself. And I used to always be like, oh, yeah, no, that's whack, that's whack, that's whack. You know, like I'm writing in praise of your work. But now I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, mm-hmm. like I get, it's so unsettling. Right. And so I don't I don't know if Don Cornelius would have it in him to, to read about what I wrote about Soul Train. But, you know, there's a part of me that just has such deep gratitude for Don Cornelius. Mm-hmm. And... Has such admiration for Don Cornelius and the offering of Soul Train and how for generations it defined a, a way for me to connect with black people simply moving on their own terms. And, um, I would love it if he read that chapter, you know, because I think it's a real ode. I, I hope that is an ode to him showing me what was possible for for me, for people I loved, you know. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people like that in the book who are, I, I, I'm I'm so cautious when writing about the dead because what I'm always often trying to invoke is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And, again, there's that word. But I, I'm trying to express a an understanding that through their living they've allowed me to collaborate with the world in a way that feels cleaner than I'd be able to without their living. And um, Don Cornelius is just one of those really big people for me, who I think of in that way. Um, you know, Mary Clayton, of course, is someone who I think of maybe in that way. Although I think perhaps that piece would probably not be the most appropriate thing for her to read herself. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it's not in praise, but I, you know, it's, I imagine there are parts of it that would be very traumatizing for mm-hmm. her to revisit. And there's, you know, Josephine Baker, of course, who's also someone who I think that I find myself conspiring with in terms of methods and modes of approaching the world in the way I want to live in it. You know, there was, you know, I love, I love the Josephine Baker line that we chose for the title. I chose for the title, but it was going to be a Josephine Baker line no matter what. Like hmm. it was going to be some Josephine Baker line no matter what. So those are folks, you know, who, um, who I think carried me towards the book. Um, but also inform the book. And of course, I mean, it goes without saying my mother as well.
0: Mm I mean, this was so wonderful to get to talk to you about this book Um, for folks listening at home. You can get the book now it's called a little devil in America. Um, And we didn't even talk about a lot of the things that are in the book, but there's Beyonce's there, Mike Tyson's there, white face, or Blackface is there, um, yeah. Rachel Dolezal's sort of there, not by name, but she's there. <laughs> so, I mean, in addition to all the things we talked about, this book is just really incredible. I highly encourage anyone who can hear my voice right now to clap and then go get the book. <laughs> but Hanif, thank you so, so, so much for being here today.
1: Thank you. It was wonderful.
0: And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much to Honey for being my guest and thank you also to Maria Breckel and Felix Cruz for helping to set up this interview. Please consider making a donation to the Million Book Project through the link in the show notes. Help us hit our goal of $50,000 towards getting books into prisons nationwide. Our April book club pick is The Tradition by Jericho Brown. We will discuss this book in detail with Reginald Dwayne Betts on Wednesday, April 28th. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at thestackspod on Instagram, at thestackspod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajus. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.